Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you. Welcome to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq El Amin, and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM. And we're streaming at WCEV1450.com. If you are new to the Radio Islam family, welcome. Thanks for tuning in. You can keep up with us by following and liking our pages on social media. You will find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. That's at Radio Islam USA. And be sure to also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get yours at. We're on Apple Podcasts for all you iPhone users. Uh, subscribe, review, rate. We're also on, on SoundCloud, uh, Google Play, TuneIn. Yeah, just about anywhere that you're going to get your podcast. Look for us at Radio Islam USA. All right. So every week uh, we touch base. Yeah, we're kind of mixing it up a little bit. So uh, this week we are going to start off with the job support. So each week we uh, touch base with our friends over at the Chicago Urban League and we talk with employment specialist extraordinaire Kimberly S. Pearson. And she gives all you Chicagoland job seekers the rundown on what's going on. So if you're looking for a new job, a better job, or just getting back into the job market um, after a long spell out, this is the report for you. So we are fortunate to have Kim on the line. How are you, Kim? I'm well. How are you today, Tariq? I'm doing good. Doing good. Just rolling with the punches. Good. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a lot of opportunities to share today. Great. So great. I'm going to go ahead and get started. Mm-hmm. Uh, first up, Metropolitan Family Services, they're having a hiring event. It's an internal hiring event that they're hosting at their Calumet location uh, that is located at 235 East 103rd Street and the event is actually tomorrow and it starts at 8 a.m. and some of the positions are hiring for because it, it is quite a few uh, they're looking for behavioral health therapists licensed clinical social workers counselors uh, registered nurses career coaches resident service coordinators case managers youth and family specialists recovery specialist, and about eight or nine others, Uh so tons of opportunities. When you arrive, you would be uh, doing your application there on site, but you do want to be prepared to have your interview. So make sure you come dressed appropriate and bring your resume and all that good stuff. It is tomorrow. It starts at 8 a.m., so you definitely want to be there early uh, to kind of beat the crowd and, and definitely be considered. And, again, that location is 235 East 103rd Street uh, at, their, at their Calumet Center location here in the city. Uh, next up, we have Plato Learning Academy. They are located at 5545 West Harrison, and they are looking for qualified teachers who must be certified uh, grades K through 8. So if you're interested, you can submit your cover letter and resume to Bryant at AQS. Org, and the subject line, make sure you put which, uh, which grade level you're interested in teaching and that you're looking uh, for the, to apply for the certified teacher's position. And something I failed to mention from Metropolitan Family Services hiring event, um, we are partner with them, so if they, you heard about it, make sure you mention the Chicago Urban League. Uh, you can definitely plug us in and push that we are getting your word out about their event. 
Uh, the next position I have is the CARE program. They are looking for an admissions specialist. And as a member of the recruitment team, you would be responsible for sourcing quality participants for the entire organization. So that means you will be doing some community outreach to engage new and established partners, as well as creating new partnerships and relationships for the organization. Um, they are definitely looking for someone that can help develop partnerships. So if you are good at uh, relationship building and that relationships that can turn into partnerships, you definitely want to give this position a try. Um, if you're interested in applying, they do have their application on an applicant tracking system. So you will go to IKRUT. Dot com um, and kind of just click through and look for the care program here in Chicago. Uh, for those of you that enjoy traveling and want to do it for a living, Southwest Airlines call center is hiring now here in their Chicago office. And some of the benefits include free travel and then casual dress code. If you would like to apply, you can go to careers.southwestair.com and click through and you'll look for locations in Chicago. Um, definitely, instead of just free baggage, you can get a free flight if you work for Southwest. Um, next up, the Illinois Department of Corrections, they are hosting a training testing session. They're hosting two, actually. So it's going to be November 13th and 14th at Governor State University. You will need to arrive between 7.30 and 8 a.m. to sign up, but you want to be prepared to stay all day. Um, you'd be there till about 3 p.m., and you definitely need to apply in advance in order to participate. So you want to apply ahead of time. You can apply at www.illinois.gov slash IDOC. Submit your application there, and then be prepared. Again, you want to get there on the 13th or the 14th of November at 7.30 in the morning. You'll sign in and be prepared to stay until about 3. And that's probably because they're anticipating large crowds. They want to make sure that you can stay in and really complete the whole process to be considered. And just to give a little feedback, this position is pretty lucrative, uh, especially for entry-level positions, um, because to start off as an officer trainee, starting pay is about 42k a year, and to start off as a uh, correctional treatment officer, starting pay is about 67.9, so upwards closer to 48. That position requires a bachelor's degree, but to start as a correctional officer training, so just an officer and not a treatment officer, but a regular officer, you do need to be a U.S. citizen, 18 years of age or older, and have a high school diploma or GED, and a uh, valid driver's license. Those are the basic requirements. And if you participate in the screening, I'm sure they'll go over what the others are. And last but not least, but something that I want to um, make sure everyone is aware of here in the state of Illinois, effective November 1st, a lot of large, uh, what we call big box organizations or uh, companies are increasing their minimum wage to $15 an hour, which can be considered a living wage. Mm -hmm. And some of those companies include Whole Foods, 
um, UPS and Amazon. Um, two of those companies, UPS and Amazon, we have really good relationships with. Um, what I found out from UPS is that they are also going to be offering shift differentials uh, in terms of rates. So if you take an overnight shift, you might actually end up getting 16 or $17 an hour, which is definitely an increase from the uh, 10 to $12 hourly rate that these positions were paying before. And this is for a package handler. So a relatively low skill, low experience required. Um, these are positions that you can obtain and make a decent living off of. So keep that in mind. Uh, starting November 1st, several companies in Chicago and in the state of Illinois period will be paying $15 an hour uh, as a minimum wage rate. So that means you can make upwards of that even more than the 15, which is a great increase for so many families. Uh, it really will make a difference in the making $11 an hour versus $15 an hour. You will see a difference in your paycheck on that. I can guarantee you that. And then just uh, as always, we are a resource to the community, anyone that's looking for employment opportunities, anyone that's looking for um, any type of training, soft skills training, resume critiquing, we are here to serve you. Every Thursday at 9 a.m. at the Chicago Urban League, we have orientation and registration. Uh, we have a wonderful facilitator. She'll talk all about our programs and everything that we're offering. We have great services for uh, the youth, 18 to 24 years of age, that do not have a degree, not really sure what their next step is. We have a really wonderful program for them. Now it even includes a stipend upon completion of the program. Yeah. Um, our technology program is underway. We have a certification happening right now. Uh, people are getting, and then they will be recruiting and starting up again in just a few more weeks. So lots of great things happening at the Urban League. If you are looking for assistance, this is where you want to come. We want you to trust our process and work with us, and we will definitely work with you to get you where you need to be in the next step in your career. Awesome. Awesome. I know I'm, I'm extremely happy to hear about the uh, $15 uh, an hour um, uh, mm -hmm. uh, raise that's, hap that's taking place. A lot of advocacy, a lot of protest uh, has gone around, you know, establishing a living wage. So that is great news to hear. Well, as always, we appreciate you taking the time and we look forward to uh, talking to you again next week. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And I will talk to you guys next week. All right, Kim. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That's our jobs report for this week. Remember, you may not be looking, but you probably know someone who is. So do them a favor and share, share, share. All right. That's our jobs report for the week. Uh, tune in again next week. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Radio Slam on WCEV 1450 AM. Assalamu alaikum. Sound Vision is starting a new initiative to provide crisis intervention to those in need. Through the crisis text line, anyone can text 741-741 and be connected via text to a trained crisis counselor who is there to listen and show empathy. 
The Crisis Text Line is open to everyone. By texting the keyword SALAM, that's S-A-L-A-M, to 741-741, users will be connected to a trained Muslim counselor whenever available. You can also volunteer to undergo training and become a counselor. For more information, visit soundvision.com. The Syrian Community Network, with offices nationwide, serves its Chicago area clients from its Northside location, located at 5439 North Broadway. They provide housing, social services, education, basic human needs, and food security. The Syrian Community Network has Arabic-speaking staff and is a partner organization of the Illinois Coalition for Immigrant and Refugee Rights. You can get more info by calling area code 872 806-0141 that's area code 872-806-0141 or by visiting their website at syriancommunitynetwork.org Radio Islam the nation's first daily live call and talk radio show produced by Muslims for the mainstream market Radio Islam, on the air since 2004 because of your generosity. Radio Islam salutes its most valuable asset, you, our listener. From our producers to our interns, we appreciate your support. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Please show your support for your community and show that you can vow to help end domestic violence by wearing a purple ribbon this October. You can also help by supporting Noor Family Services, an organization in Georgia that helps Muslim victims of domestic violence. I also want to encourage my fellow Imams to join us in delivering khutbahs this month about domestic violence and showing our communities the impact that this is having on our families. Welcome back to Radio Islam. This is your host, Tariq el and we want to remind you that all of October, is Domestic Violence Awareness Month and that the Muslim community, like every other community, struggles to deal with this issue. Uh, And quite honestly, most people don't want to talk about it, but uh, not talking about it does not make it go away. So the clip you just heard from was from uh, Noor Family Services out of Georgia. And uh, alhamdulillah, all praise due to Allah, there are a number of organizations within the Muslim community that are rising up to to the challenge to confront and correct this problem, uh, and Sound Vision does its part uh, as well to raise awareness about this and other serious issues that families are dealing with, and they're dealing with uh, they're dealing with them quite often in silence, uh, and quite honestly, even when some people want to reach out for help, uh, don't always feel comfortable talking about issues like this. So this this falls into the area of stigma, right? There's a stigma around d- the domestic violence. And uh, a part of that stigma is is being looked at as weak or um, or ignorant uh, or, or I mean that you know there, there are a number of stigmas uh, that, that come along with it, and unfortunately those stigmas they don't do anything to help people deal with those issues, and this is probably something that uh, especially within our political climate that we find ourselves in just. Uh, coming off of the confirmation of uh, Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh uh, and having accusers step forward and and give their uh, testimony, giving their account of of what took place and seeing how there were a large number, uh, I shouldn't say a large number, but there were were quite a 
there were enough people who who dismissed their uh, testimony, who dismissed their recollection. Uh, now, I know we were talking about uh, theirs was sexual misconduct, sexual assault, uh, and we're talking about domestic violence, but sometimes, uh, quite often, these two things overlapped with one another. Uh, but the whole point was they were dismissed. Uh, they were not believed. They were not looked at. Uh, they, were, they, were, they were painted out as not credible uh, individuals, and that type of rejection uh, is often enough to keep people silent, to keep them from coming out and actually seeking help. So one of the other um, assumptions that goes along with uh, domestic violence is that some people believe that it's permissible in Islam, while it's not. Now, it is a problem in the Muslim community as much as it is in any other part of uh, of our population, um, as it is in any other faith. Uh, So it's not something that is unique uh, to Islam, but it is certainly not something that is uh, upheld or approved of and... I think as by evidence by the, the clip that we went in, uh, I, we didn't talk about somebody, even though we're based here uh, in Chicago, we didn't talk about it as a Chicago issue, right? We just heard from uh, an organization from from Georgia that is picking up uh, the, the mantle of responsibility and saying that uh, we're going to serve our community and eradicate it. And I really appreciate the fact that uh, in that, he said he made a plea uh, he made an appeal to his fellow imams, uh, those who are standing in front of the community, giving spiritual guidance and insight, reminding uh, us of of of, uh, of our best selves uh, to speak to this issue. Because, believe it, that we have people that are coming into the masjid uh, every Friday, uh, and they are, there's somebody that's dealing with this issue and may not know how uh, maybe they may not know how to to come out of it, so uh, that's important for those who are standing in front of the uh, community to take part uh, in addressing it. So, um, if you go to SoundVision, SoundVision.com, uh, there are a number of articles that you're going to find that address uh, just a, a myriad of uh, of topics uh, and domestic violence uh, being one of them. But we want to take a minute because this is Domestic Violence uh, Awareness Month. Uh, to talk about some of the uh, contributing factors, right, to think about these things uh, that that impact uh, and perpetuate, well, I don't want to say perpetuate, but that you find them um, uh, giving life to this horror uh, uh, that we're, we're talking about here uh, in domestic violence. So uh, we have socioeconomic factors, right, uh, and... If you look at, uh, I know there are uh, stats that were brought up uh, regarding the number or the percentage of divorces uh, in the United States that were related to money. And that was, I'm not going to give you the stat, but I'll say this, that the ma- a great majority of them had money as, um, uh, as a contributing factor, right? So when we talk about socioeconomic factors, we're talking about um, where a person is positioned uh, in society, uh, and that being directly related to, uh, you know, to their paycheck, directly related to the type of uh, the type of life they they are able to provide for themselves. And when money gets tight, then you find a breakdown uh, that you know it has it's a trickle down effect. 
So uh, that that's one. And then there are other factors that go along with it. But as I kind of go down this list, we'll we'll see a connection between uh, between all of these things. Uh, jealousy and unstable rage. That's uh, a factor, not an excuse uh, by any means. Right. But it is a factor. Uh, and that means that we're dealing with individuals who are not fully uh, for who are not fully formed. Uh, people who probably. Right. Uh, I don't want to make a, just a blanket judgment, but people who probably need to work on themselves before they find themselves in a relationship. But the reality is, a lot of times we don't we find out things about ourselves and about our uh, spouses, our partners, as we you know, as we move on, uh, as we uh, experience life uh, together. But jealousy and unstable rage, these are things that uh, that that definitely contribute to domestic violence. Uh, and this next one is a really important one, right? A cycle of abuse in the family. And this is it's dysfunction, right? That's pretty much it's, it's dysfunction. When you see something done, uh, when, when you, whether it's right or wrong, uh, but if you see it done in enough spaces, especially uh, during formative, the formative years, uh, we can take on those things as, you know, as the norm, as acceptable. And then we begin to uh, we replicate those models that we've seen. So we replicate those models that we've seen. And uh, so this is really important when we think about when we see uh, these 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 uh, circumstances of domestic violence. That we know, especially when children are involved, that they are quite often they're looking at an example that if they are not taught if they if they're not if they're not um if they're not addressed right their own uh, emotional and, and mental well-being is not addressed then these are traumatic incidents that uh that they, they don't heal they leave wounds uh and 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 the evidence of that comes out later on when they find themselves uh in a marriage where they're either the one who is um uh, you know who who is accepting uh, who is who finds themselves accepting of a violent relationship or they're the one who is the abuser right these things they don't just happen out of nowhere so that cycle of abuse in the family is really important to look at that even after the person you know whether it's a man or woman and we know predominantly it is women who uh unfortunately are the uh are the victims uh more often than not of domestic violence and uh, this this next one, mental illness, uh, and this is this is one of those factors that we're starting to remove some of the stigma around mental health in general, and it's been a really slow, uh, a very slow um, uh, moving of the needle uh, in this area. Uh, and I think uh, to a large uh, to a large degree, we have our servicemen and women to uh, to look at. As being a part of the uh, of the, the the thrust to to push us to accept that you know mental health and mental uh, uh, mental wellness that that's something that we can't you know we can't turn a blind eye uh, to. So as we're dealing with accepting the idea of post traumatic stress um, uh, disorder or syndrome or um, whatever it is, uh, we're also realizing that traumatic events regardless of where they take place that they have an impact on our mental well-being so uh, I know mental illness is not necessarily something is not um, uh, it doesn't go it, it doesn't equate necessarily to 
uh, PTSD. We might be talking about something like uh, being diagnosed as bipolar or uh, schizophrenic or, uh, you know, some other diagnosis. Uh, and this also means that we'll, we'll, we'll take some time uh, in the near future to get some mental health professionals on to talk about some of these issues more in depth. But just for general uh, general awareness is something for us to take into consideration that mental illness does have an impact on the occurrence of, of domestic violence. And social learning. This goes back to that idea of dysfunction. Uh, there are communities uh, right here in Chicago, um, and I don't have to isolate it, but I, I'm going to because I know this to be a fact. There are communities where fights between men and women and I use the word fight loosely, but I could just say that women getting actually uh, physically beat up uh, in the streets, that it does not raise an eyebrow, right? And that that is a, that, that, that is a really telling uh, narrative to think that that could be the case, uh, where people have seen this type of thing so often that it's just really a part of, uh, it's just a part of part of life, uh, and I would also bring this back to the uh, when we talk about uh, upbringing and social learning, uh, the number of high school students, high school couples, where domestic where violence, uh, intimate partner violence, is taking place. So you know we move from the idea of domestic violence, uh, violence taking place within the home, but just intimate partner violence, violence taking place between. Uh, in a relationship, uh, and we have more occurrences of of that reality uh, taking place in our schools with our, I mean, high school kids that are dealing with intimate partner violence and much less equipped uh, to deal with seeking help or reaching out to somebody to tell them this is what I'm going to uh, going through because one of the first things that 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 comes out from people who are not trained in dealing with uh, just first of all dealing with the reporting of domestic violence is that they speak from an emotional um, standpoint uh, not understanding the dynamics of uh, of domestic violence and and one of the first things they'll do is they'll call that person you know call us stupid what is, why are you still with this person what's wrong with you you know are you crazy are you looking to get yourself killed or uh, you know any anything along along that line, uh, and one of the things that I found out because I've been to a number of uh, of trainings and, and dialogues around uh, domestic violence uh, reporting is that it generally takes uh, when we're talking about women it generally takes them uh, uh, at least uh, was it three or four times uh, before they finally leave, um, but also along with that. If they report that they are in a violent uh, situation and they are met with uh, scrutiny or disbelief or if it's not handled properly, that's really the best way to put it. If it's not handled properly, then that individual is likely not to come back uh, again. So being able to receive that report properly the first time is critical. So this is also uh, another Another reason for those who find themselves dealing with uh, the public, and whether you you know you're an imam, you you you're, um, you you work with a, a community service organization, uh, you know you're a mentor, 
uh, whatever it is, if you're in any type of uh, an organization, uh, you find yourself in contact with people uh, and with women in particular who, who may come to you and share it with you, uh, it's important to know how to um, how to process that and how to respond. So uh, last thing I want to mention uh, with regard to domestic violence, uh, this is something that is going to take a, uh, a community effort uh, as far as uh, not just in responding to, but in educating and talking about it and pulling the covers back uh, off of it. Uh, it's an issue for not just Muslims, but it's an issue, you know, it's an issue for the community uh, at large. Uh, I go back to February 2009. There was a survey conducted by Sound Vision where we surveyed more than 200 individuals across North America. And about seven in 10 people know someone who has experienced some degree of domestic violence. That's just just that's just let you know how pervasive uh, this issue is. Now, there are a few uh, other important stats that uh, I think is important to mention also. Uh, 41% of almost 200 Muslims experience domestic violence, either verbal, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. This is according to a Peaceful Families Project um, 2007 survey. And one in every four women will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. Uh, That was the stat I believe I was uh, alluding to, I was searching for earlier. So one in every four women, right, 25%. That is a ridiculous, uh, that is a shameful um, uh, number. Uh, that's just, that's, that's crazy. Uh, and that's according to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And 85% of domestic violence victims are women, right? So we know there are, you know, there are men, and I think we say that uh, we include men in it because, you know, they are a part of that, uh, you know, it, it is happening. But the overall majority, 85%, are women. All right, and the, the last thing that I want to say want to mention here last thing I want to mention here is that domestic violence is one of the most underreported crimes only one quarter of all physical assaults one-fifth of all rapes and one half of all stalkings perpetuated against females by intimate partners are reported to the police I'll say that again one quarter of all physical assaults one-fifth of all rapes and one half of all stalkings that are perpetuated against women by intimate partners are reported to the police. And if you think back again to the end result of uh, three women coming forward to give their story, to tell what happened to them um, against a man being uh, vetted and considered for uh, a lifetime appointment to the United States Supreme Court, Uh, and you look at the end result of that, is it really any, uh, does it surprise anybody? Does it surprise anybody that they would say, well, why would I do it? Now, I'm not saying that that would be the only reason, but there there are a lot of, there are a lot of reasons that, that keep women from uh, reporting these instances. Uh, But I would say chief among them would have to be the lack of belief uh, the lack of support that comes when they do reach out uh, for help. So this is uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and one of the things that uh, folks are encouraging uh, to show your support and to show uh, your awareness. Um, folks are wearing 
purple ribbons or I think maybe just putting purple on, but uh, just to show your awareness. So it's something that we definitely need to continue talking about uh, because as with all problems, they do not solve themselves. All right, we're going to take a short break and we will be back in a minute. This is Radio Islam on WCEB 1450 AM. I'm getting a remarkably heartfelt bear hug from Smokey Bear. Thanks, big guy. Now, if you could let me down. <clears throat> See, I made sure there were no low-hanging branches when I set up my campfire. And before we left, I drowned out my campfire, stirred it, drowned it out again, then made sure it was cold. <clears throat> Visit SmokeyBear.com to learn tips to prevent wildfires. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. Would your business survive a disaster? Nearly two-thirds of businesses aren't prepared for an emergency, and 40% of businesses that experience a disaster never recover. Make an emergency plan now before it's too late. For a free online tool that helps you develop an emergency plan to keep your business up and running should disaster strike, visit ready.gov forward slash business. Brought to you by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, the American Red Cross, and the Ad Council. Welcome back. Welcome back to Radio Islam. I'm your host, Tariq el and we're broadcasting on WCEV 1450 AM, streaming at WCEV1450.com. Remember, you can keep up with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Radio Islam USA. And also, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast. So wherever you get yours at, you'll find us at Radio Islam USA. We're on Apple Podcasts for all the iTunes users. Uh, I'm sorry, all you iPhone users, make sure that you uh, that you rate uh, and review. All right. OK, uh, if you are just tuning in, I want to give you a moment to uh, to hear from the impressive one, assistant producer Ibrahim Bey, who is who is with me here. All right. All right. <laughs> like my slime. <laughs> so. Uh, you and I were talking about, you know, where I was talking about what's in the news. And, um, you know, fortunately, we live in we're in a time where we're, we're never left with nothing to talk about. So uh, one of the things that is in the news right now is the future of affirmative action. Right. Because on the docket for the Supreme Court is going to be um, they'll they'll be dealing with this issue. And probably. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, to see how they respond to it, and you you were reading an article that that was kind of you know giving some throwing out some ideas on it. Yeah, there's a couple articles I was looking at in the New York Times. It's been all over the news. It was on NPR too, I think. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a group of a group representing 
about 20 Asian American students, I think. The issue revolves around Harvard, and basically Harvard was using affirmative action to um, kind of discount or give less priority to Asian students despite them in this case having uh, very good numbers on paper high test scores high grades extracurricular all the checklist items that you look for right they had those but were still kind of being disqualified to some extent just because of them being Asian so that's what the issue revolves around yeah there was this one uh, and, and I don't know one of the individuals um, I heard about in the news and he he scored he was he was number one in his class he scored a perfect uh, SAT or ACT score uh, and still was denied entry uh, into Harvard you know and I can understand you know you're number one in your class and and you got a perfect score and you still don't get in um, but the response there was some of the responses have been uh, when it comes to uh, admission policies, admission requirements, right? That is this something that the universities that they should have uh, final say so, especially if they're looking at trying to uh, they're trying to promote diversity, not just on a uh, not just diversity as far as race is concerned, but maybe diversity uh, with regard to socioeconomic status, diversity with regard to gender, diversity. Uh, with, with regard to uh, religion, you know, um, you got any thoughts on that? What do, what do you think about that? I don't know. There's just a lot I'm trying to sort out um, in this case. I um, also want to point out that in, to go into further detail in Harvard, they were um, the Asian students were given lower scores for personality traits like humor oh, really? and grit. Um, that's part of the the way they were disqualified. Um, Humor and grit. Yeah, so so it's, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. They were kind of assumed as having like less you know vibrant personalities or something like that. Um, one of the articles I was reading in the New York Times is written by, I think her name was Lisa Ko. Mm-hmm. She's a novelist, and one part of it um, stood out for me. I'm also well, well, before we get into even another question, what does it mean to be Asian? Like, am I Asian? My parents are from, you know, uh, Pakistan. Right. right. Am I Asian, Asian? Or am I kind of Asian, you know, mm. South Asian? Right. Whatever, what counts. Anyway, um, what, one part of this article that stood out to me was the author says, For many children of immigrants who came to the United States as beneficiaries of the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, our origin stories have centered on our relationships to whiteness and class assimilation. We're too American or not American enough. We're tired of this story being the dominant one. Mm. I think she does a, uh, a very good service by bringing up the issue of whiteness and people being measured in their proximity to whiteness. So I do think that Asians are seen by society, seen by white society as being much closer to whiteness than, say, African Americans or uh, Latinx citizens mm-hmm. of our country, you know? I, I agree with that. Um, but I think that's also a part of the, uh, that's also a part of the effects of the model minority um, label, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but there's also some clear uh, there's some clear markers there with regard to uh, cultural differences, 
uh, and and then also bias as well, right? For to get a to get a lax grit or a lax humor, right? Once again, it it goes to a universal idea of what humor is, uh, or what grit looks like, what resilience looks like, uh, and that doesn't look the same uh, across the board. Mm-hmm. So, I would I would actually like to see who's doing the reviewing. Yeah. Right. Because I think you know uh, everybody has their own biases, but I think this is this is a prime example of I think bias taking place. Um, but I think it's also important with this conversation, especially for younger listeners who may not be aware. Now, I also want to point out, mm-hmm. uh, just to clarify for listeners, yeah. these Asian American students are when they are rejected by Harvard or given a lesser priority. They are done so most likely from everything I'm reading. It seems like in favor of uh, African American and Latinx students. So we're not talking about Asians being pushed out to get more white people in or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really a, an, an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, go on. But yeah, that, that that definitely is because if uh, if white applicants are not a part of that, uh, well, that's another conversation uh, as well. But. Uh, what I wanted to do, especially for those uh, younger listeners who may not be familiar with affirmative action as to how it came about, to give you just a brief recap. So this term affirmative action, uh, it was first introduced by President Kennedy back in 1961. And this was done as a method of redressing uh, discrimination that had persisted uh, in the United States, right? E- even in spite of civil rights laws and constitutional guarantees, if you go back and you look at uh, Jim Crow era, you look at separate but equal um, and uh, admission policies for most universities throughout, uh, especially throughout the South, where if you were African-American, you were not getting in. So uh, there was legislation that had to come about uh, to to make sure that there was access uh, to higher education. So this, this, this is what came about, and it was developed and enforced for the first time by President Johnson, President uh, Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson. And here we are today where people feel that the, um, that the effects of separate but equal or the effects of, uh, of slavery or the effects of uh, just, just you know, systemic oppression have been remedied since 61. Uh, and that in itself is, you know, that's a ridiculous assertion, right? So, uh, but the Supreme Court, they did uphold that uh, the legislation was not supposed to be, that they were, not, they were not concerned in redressing prior wrongdoings, right? Trying to, uh, trying to level the playing field. Their concern is in how the, how the law, as it's, as it's written, uh, as it's, as it's uh, interpreted and, and being consistent with constitutional uh, the constitutional um, law. Yeah, it's. I, th- I think personally, it's very important to keep the historical context in the big in the big picture. Yeah. Um, some people kind of try not to do that, um, and some some people. So some people's focus is basically on just we need to have diversity. We need diverse institutions, and that will improve our society. Right. But I, I personally, I think it's very important to keep the entire historical context of slavery and then uh, about 100 years of Jim Crow uh, in place. And so we get the idea that when we talked a little bit before about 
equity versus equality, right? Mm -hmm. So someone could have identical test scores or whatever, but equity might produce different results in the selection process than just, you know, taking in store without taking things into historical context of Jim Crow and an educational system right. which uh, stunts people's academic growth and so on. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, and and that is that's a critical point. Uh, but for those, but for those students today, right, who find themselves in a position of being number one in their class, of getting a perfect score, uh, of of having all the community service hours and all of that, and still being denied entry into, uh, and 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 let me back up for a second because, like for for a university like Columbia, um, their their acceptance rate. Is ridiculously low. Columbia, Chicago. No, no, Columbia, New York. Uh, New York. Okay. Right. They've got a tremendously low uh, acceptance rate. And one of the things um, I was listening to an interview with applicants who were accepted, and they all asked the same question, or they were asked the same question: How did you get in? What do you think? What was the deciding factor? And none of them knew. Some of them were like, well, you know, it was my community service. It was my essay. It was my uh, you know, had great grades and all this other stuff. Um, but it got to the point where more and more of them said, I don't know, I have no idea what it is, right? And I only bring this up to say that even with great grades and a great application, it's not necessarily, it, it doesn't. it's not a guarantee that you're going to be granted admission anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of times admission into colleges just comes down to arbitrary factors. Yeah. Um, like how many people f- are there from this school district? Oh, this would be a good person from that state. You know, it's yeah. very, it, it's it's hard to really pinpoint for anyone what fact, what f- was the one factor that caused them to get in. Mm-hmm. Um, the the second article I was reading, and then actually the first one I was reading uh, in the New York Times was, came out, I think today, it is written by it's an opinion written by someone named Dr. Robert Rue who is a graduate of Harvard and is currently a prof- a professor at UC Berkeley. Okay. Uh, he's an Asian American. Mm-hmm. Um he says I'll read a couple parts from his article which stood out. He says like many Asian Americans and many Harvard graduates I vigorously oppose the lawsuit meaning the lawsuit brought by um, the group representing the Asian students. I reject the false equivalence of the argument that taking into consideration the race of applicants from underrepresented groups is the same as discriminating against everyone else. So kind of the the classical dilemma or whatever of affirmative action. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple paragraphs later, he goes on to say, I am now a faculty member at the University of California, Berkeley, a public university that is sometimes used as a counterpoint to Harvard's holistic undergraduate admissions policy. So they kind of tried to do the opposite and eliminate uh, affirmative action. He says, Berkeley eliminated affirmative action in graduate and professional schools in 1996 and in its undergraduate school in 1998. The passage of State Proposition 209 in 1996 prevented a reconsideration of this position, eliminating race as a factor for admissions. So mm-hmm. they got rid of it. After this policy change, he says, 
the percentages of underrepresented minorities defined as African-American, Chicano, Latino, and Native American students already low dropped even further and haven't fully recovered since. For example, African-Americans now account for only 3% of the student body at Berkeley. At Harvard, according to the Boston Globe, recent data shows they make up about 8% of the student body and represent about 15% of admitted students. Mm. So he's saying Berkeley became kind of the opposite of what Harvard did, and their uh, rate of diversity suffered considerably, very noticeably. Yeah. So he's arguing that even though he's Asian-American and there might be some uh, Asian students that are discounted or whatever, that overall, he goes on to say that overall the goal of going to college and, and going to a university is to have a diverse environment where you can interact with many different types of people and learn by discussing various things with different people that you've never encountered uh, outside the classroom as well as inside the classroom. And so this uh, policy that Harvard has, affirmative action, really serves well in upholding that goal and that standard. Yeah. So he's in favor of it. Yeah. Yeah, I I was checking his, uh, I was checking him out. I didn't realize I was the same guy. Hmm. (laughs) But, um, yeah, and and if we're talking about uh, erasing the income uh, gap, the the wealth gap, uh, then... We have to look at college. We have to look, at, you know, as a part of that equation. Not, not the end all, be all of it, but definitely as a part of the equation. So I was just, I was looking at the uh, stats for high school uh, earnings. A uh, person who just, you know, finishes high school uh, as compared to someone who has a college uh, degree, and the difference over a lifetime. Uh, I think it's like it's a million dollars, right? It's a million dollars on average that a college graduate is going to earn. Uh, that's not going to be seen by a high school graduate. Now, there there are a lot of other factors that that go into this, right? But we also know that the college that you, that you go to, it does matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it does matter. So, uh, you know, a degree from, you know, from DeVry. I'm not kicking on DeVry. DeVry for a second, uh, but it's not the same as a degree from University of Chicago. Right? Yeah. They're not in the same playing field. So uh, just access and social mobility and all of these things, um, uh, if we're looking at the, the larger impact uh, on society and not, not just having a permanent underrepresented uh, segment of society, then policies uh, are going to have to be, they're going to have to be, uh, they have to be in place. Right, because people aren't going to do them on their own. Yeah, it's interesting you brought up the the tier system for colleges. There's unwritten rules, I guess. This mm-hmm. unwritten like caste system. Yeah. Um, now that comes from a time was even more interesting. That comes from a time where um, uh, it used to be all about money. Right. right? Your parents, if your parents were wealthy enough, they would be able to send you to uh, maybe a good private school or college prep school mm-hmm. and they were able to save up enough money to pay for your college education and, and that's how you got into these top tier schools right right i think affirmative action is now that's it still exists to some extent we're still coming out of that era but i do think affirmative action is one of the things that is uh that that caused a big change in that in that kind of ecosystem so to speak 
where you do have more of a chance now uh, coming from yeah, maybe an inner city community or a rural community. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because your parents haven't made a lot of money and saved up tons of money and sent you to some fancy prep school yep. doesn't mean that you can't get into a, a top-tier university anymore. That's That system, I think we're coming out of that. So we're still transitioning out of it. it. The structure is still there. The framework is still there to, to a great extent. But a lot of a lot of strides have been made to come out of that era i think and we are coming out of that era affirmative action has a lot to do with that mm. well there's going to definitely be a lot of pushback because that system it has benefited uh, a much smaller segment of the population you know cuz not all not all white applicants come out of that situation right yeah. so um and we have to mention one yeah. more thing we can't mention we can't not mention this what's that is that our educational system the public school system is driven by property value, right? Mm-hmm. Any uh, any public school, a significant amount of their funding comes from property taxes, which when the property value of a certain community is higher, that the public school is going to get more money. Right, more um, resources. This is an essentially, yep. you know, a fundamentally uh, biased system. So if you go to somewhere like far here in Chicago, far western suburbs or something like that where the property values are very high. Mm-hmm. Public schools are going to get more money. If you go to the west side of Chicago, for example, where the property values are very low, mm-hmm. that puts the kids there at a disadvantage because the schools get less money. And it doesn't it means it doesn't take a, a you know, scientist or whatever to see this just by visually looking at different schools, you know. Yeah, th- there's a built-in trap uh, yeah. within that that's going to keep these uh, these these differences. Um, and if you play. go, if you look even further, you find out that this this uh, housing system and the real estate system, the 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 structure of valuing different areas of the city of the country, was in fact driven a lot by race. Yeah. So this is a very strong argument in favor of affirmative action. As for me, uh, I want to say that. For this specific issue of the Asian students and stuff, I'm still kind of on the fence. I'm mm-hmm. evaluating it. I see both sides. But no doubt that affirmative action uh, in general has to be in place until these other en- enormous grievances are, are addressed. And I'll end with this. I'll say that uh, as America continues to become browner, uh, that the, it, there, there's not a defense, uh, in my in my opinion, for having this this same kind of idea that these are the minorities, uh, and that 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 majority not being reflected in university population, right? It can't. So that that's going to be the next thing we'll have to talk about. So yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna end this here, but we will we're gonna revisit it, right? Because we just really just touched kind of just touched on this uh, the, the very surface of it. So we thank you all for tuning in. Uh, And with that, we're going to thank our engineers over at WCEV. Make sure we come through loud and clear. I'm your host, Tariq Alameen, joined by my co-host and co-producer, Ibrahim Baig. Our executive producer is Abdul Malik Mujahid. And we remind you that the views expressed by the host and our guests are theirs and are to be taken as a representation of sound vision. And with that, we're going to leave you as we greeted you. Assalamu alaikum. May the peace that only God can give be upon you.